0: Welcome into the Housing Hour with Kevin Ray, a locally produced program devoted to bringing you a fresh perspective on housing, diving into the issues that matter most. The Housing Hour with Kevin Ray is presented by Mortgage Investors Group, and now, Kevin Ray.
1: Welcome into the Housing Hour. This is Kevin Ray. I am your host. I'm here with Mark Griffith, our executive producer and co-host. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for coming in to the show. Um, we want to let you know how to contact us. If you would like to uh, share our information with friends and family, we can get you at thehousinghour.com. That's where the treasure trove of information is located. Um, also we're on all of the social media channels as well. The most common one is Facebook, facebook.com slash the housing hour and Twitter at the housing hour. And today um, is a very unique day because Today, it marks the anniversary, 50 years, of the forestall fire that occurred, um, and a lot of lives were lost, and it was um, one of those incidents in American history that really paved the way for a lot of different things, whether it be safety inspection or how you fight fires, but uh, on the phone today, we have a, a, a person who is going to give us some history behind the USS Forrestal that was nearly lost um, due to a bomb that had exploded on this ship and the heroic efforts by the people on the ship to save it. And not only that, but the people who came to its rescue um, to fight the fires as well. And so on the phone today, we have Gregory Freeman. He is an award-winning author. Um, he has some some really great books out, one um, is about the forest all, as a matter of fact, that we're going to be talking about today, and it's called Sailors to the End, and we'll have a link on our website. you mm-hmm. would like to purchase that book for sure. His most recent work is um, The Gathering Wind Through her- Hurricane Sandy, The Sailing Ship, Bounty, and A Courageous Rescue at Sea. I'm sure that book is very interesting. I'd love to read that one. Um, but thank you so much, Gregory, for coming on the show.
2: You're welcome. Glad to be here.
1: If you don't mind, so that our listeners understand what exactly we're talking about, um, could you just give us the thirty thousand foot overview of what today means? It's fifty years. Talk a little bit about, you know, just in a high level way. What what exactly are we commemorating today?
2: Well, fifty years ago today, uh, there was an incident at sea off the coast of Vietnam that um, a lot of people don't know about, but it was uh, it was a truly significant. Uh, event in naval history and and changed the lives of so many people. Um, The aircraft carrier, the Forrestal, was uh, at station off of uh, Vietnam, uh, launching uh, airstrikes during the Vietnam War, when they had an accident on the flight deck. Um, A Zuni rocket accidentally fired from one plane uh, across the deck and hit the plane occupied by John McCain. Um, and uh, that set off a uh, horrific fire uh, that ended up uh, killing 134 uh, young sailors mm. and injuring a great many more and uh, very nearly resulted in the loss of uh, what was at that time the, the nation's biggest, most powerful aircraft carrier.
1: Wow. And that, that history that you just described, there has been you know, many people over the years, really, that have looked at and and sort of investigated and examined what happened and i mean overall if you if you think about the efforts that were made by the people who who survived um really uh, amazing story um and why don't we so that people can understand the timeline when when did this ship set sail And, and their goal really was to act as obviously an aircraft carrier for um for events that were happening in Vietnam and they were launching ship, they were launching planes and they were able to get some of that accomplished. Um, But can you just talk us through, you know, what was the USS Forrestal's mission and leading up to that day, sort of a timeline of what happened?
2: Yeah, the Forrestal was, um, the, the largest, uh, most powerful carrier at that time and, um, had sailed, um, uh, from the East Coast to Vietnam, and had been stationed there for a short time. And their job was basically to uh, launch airstrikes uh, in, into Vietnam. And um, on the morning of the fire, uh, that's what they were doing. It was a um, fairly routine day uh, in terms of their, their mission there. there were, uh, uh, the, the location uh, off of Vietnam was called Yankee Station, that's where they stayed. That's mm-hmm. where uh, U.S. aircraft carriers basically stayed. And the carriers would swap each other out once in a while, and it was uh, Forrestal's turn to be there. And um, it was during a uh, what should have been a fairly routine launch that morning uh, that the fire occurred.
1: And, you know, when you think about what types of equipment that they had, I mean, this is 1967, you know, leading up to this, obviously is when their their mission um was ensued and the type of equipment that they had is certainly not what we had today but there was some particular interest in some of the reading that i read about the bombs that they secured and that that the the shipment and the people that were loading some of the some of the equipment maybe made mention that you know some of these bombs maybe weren't like the most up-to-date bombs of the time even
2: that's true um and this didn't really come out until um, my book uh, came out. The mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the Navy let the sailors of the forest all think for 35 years that they had basically um, screwed up and caused this fire and caused the deaths of their, their, their buddies. But mm-hmm. what I discovered actually happened was that um, on the night before the fire, they took a shipment from the munition ship, the Diamond Head, um, mm-hmm. which was... That's how how it routinely happened. Uh, the, a mun- munition ship like the Diamond Head would pull alongside, transfer bombs and such that they needed. And on this night, um, they were transferring pallets of bombs, and the people in charge and some of the other sailors nearby noticed that some of the crates were stenciled with the year 1935. Mm. And um, they realized that uh, these were World War II-era weapons that had been left um, outside, apparently in the Philippines, stored outside, and had aged and become very unstable. And the munition ship wasn't happy about picking them up and carrying them, and then when they transferred them to the, the forestall, the uh, captain and his munitions officers didn't want them, um, but the munition ship said, hey, this is all we've got, this is what you have, and you have orders for, for launches tomorrow morning, so you have to take them. And the captain was very unhappy about it, but he said, we're going to leave them up t- top. We're not going to take them down to storage, and we're going to put them on the first flights off tomorrow morning to get them off my ship.
1: Mm-hmm. And they were loadable. They were, I mean, obviously they were, didn't have to be retrofitted. I mean, these were bombs that were that were made for these types of planes or they wouldn't have been able to secure them. They were just old and maybe not up to date. Maybe they were left, like you said, in conditions that were not proper, and they were 20 years old at the time, 20-whatever, 3 years old. So maybe those yeah. those should have probably been uh, decommissioned.
2: Yeah, and there were really two problems with them. First was just the simple age of the, the bombs. They were. Uh, some people said they actually saw them leaking fluid. I mean, they had just aged beyond any measure of safety. And in addition, uh, newer age bombs, the uh, H-6 bombs, I think they were called at the time, um, were specifically designed to be more stable. They could withstand um, a a certain time in fire without blowing up right away. They they were designed to give people time to put out the fire before the bombs actually detonated. Mm -hmm. The older bombs weren't like that. Uh, and particularly with their age, they were just especially volatile. Yeah.
1: Well, and, and looking back, of course, we're fifty years from the date, and nobody wants to, you know, uncover and point fingers. But we, you know, understanding the history of it and understanding also what caused it, we can prevent those things from happening in the future. And I promise you this: that they learned a very big lesson from this, and they took what they learned and, and implemented it in the future.
3: And and Gregory, what I loved about the book. It, at the beginning of it, you uh, go into the fact that in the morning before the accident occurred, overnight, there was a loss of life of one of the crew member by they were wrestling or horsing around, and they fell overboard. So it kind of set the, the wow. stage for this day. Did yeah. I read that right?
2: Yeah, that's, that's true. Um, and um, it, it, it's important to know that just on, on a – totally routine, normal day on an aircraft carrier, it's one of the most dangerous places in the world you can work. Uh, Being on the flight deck during operations is just so incredibly dangerous. There's so many ways to get hurt and killed. And aside from flight operations, just around on on a carrier, I mean, it's it's very, very easy to just fall off the deck. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they had men overboard, drills but they also had actual man overboard situations and the night before this at 3:15 in the morning uh, a couple sailors were kind of horse playing one of them fell overboard and they called the man overboard and that that routes the entire crew no matter what shift they're working no matter what when they're supposed to be resting the entire crew has to get up to muster and count heads and go into rescue operations and so the morning that all of this Unfolded. Um, everybody had been up the whole night before. Mm. And so it was just a, a very bad confluence of events.
1: Wow. That's, that's amazing. And I have certainly heard the stories, and I've also heard the testimonials and uh, the video that I've watched of John McCain as well. And we're going to lead out of this uh, break with a, a little bit of uh, historic um, music here, and we're going to come back in a moment with Gregory and talk and continue to talk about this event.
0: Housing Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what's really going on out there and what to do about it.
1: Again, Kevin Ray. Welcome back into the Housing Hour. Again, this is Kevin Ray. This is the Housing Hour. Thank you for joining us. Definitely a day to remember um, in America, and we have on the phone with us today Um, the author of Sailors to the End, uh, Gregory A. Freeman. We have the link on our website, thehousinghour.com, if you'd like to go there um, and download and actually buy the book. Uh, We have purchased a book, and it's a great read for anyone who would like to learn about the history of this deadly fire um, on the USS Forrestal and also the heroes who fought it. And that's really the big piece of the puzzle and also a big piece of the story. But um, you had a question that you'd like it lead into. Mark. I
3: did. I, w- I was want to ask you, but I first want to say about the book. What I love about it is the fact that Gregory is an investigative journalist. Isn't that mm-hmm. true, Gregory? Yes. Yeah. And and they they always make the best books. Absolutely. Because they know how to tell a story. Absolutely. So I, you got to get this read and the, the details. A and the details mm-hmm. are just incredible. But lead us up in the morning. The accident occurred, but there was a technical thing that occurred if you can walk everybody through and maybe not get too technical about how these things were armed and the timing of the arming of the zuni missiles that could help set the stage for how the accident actually uh, occurred
2: yeah sure it um it, it's a little complicated especially for somebody who's doesn't actually do it for a living like myself but (laughs) uh but it basically gets down to two different groups working on preparing the zuni rockets for for loading and 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 launch and both of them are taking safety precautions to make sure that that rocket can't accidentally fire uh before it's actually launched off the uh, off the deck um but they were under a lot of pressure to um to speed things up the 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 launch orders for, for the raids in Vietnam were, were very intense, and the carrier was under a lot of pressure to, to get those planes up and moving as quickly as possible. So um, at one point, uh, one of the crew that prepared the, the missiles below deck said, well, we can take this uh, shortcut um, because we know that the crew up on top on deck, they still have a, a safety procedure in place. That will protect this rocket from being able to fire. Well, at the same time, the crew up on the top of the deck was saying, hey, we can take this shortcut because we know the crew down below uh, is still doing their safety uh, maneuver that will keep this rocket safe. So, unbeknownst to each other, they were both taking a shortcut, and there was no, uh, they, they both eliminated the, 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 the safety measures that would have allowed, that, that would have prevented the rocket from firing. So, what happened was essentially, when they loaded the rocket on the plane, it was capable of firing. Um, it only did fire because, in addition to all that, there was just a stray electrical surge from some equipment that made it to the rocket
1: mm. yeah so, so there was, bas- was yeah so so during your investigation, you were able to evaluate because there was a lot of evidence what you're saying is is kind of what you brought out of the investigation.
2: Yeah, yeah, and all of this took some time to come out. At first mm-hmm. there were lots of wild theories about why the rocket fired. They they thought it might have been uh, the heat from um, what's called a huffer on board, which is essentially like a uh, portable generator kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but eventually it was determined that it was this <clears throat> unusual series of uh, electrical glitches and if those other safety measures had been in place, the electrical glitch still couldn't have made the rocket fire. But it was just a, a, a very un, unfortunate uh, mm-hmm. bringing together of, of, of situations that normally
1: wouldn't have happened at all. You mentioned in the first segment that it wasn't until your book, I think that people maybe got a little bit bigger understanding or more clear understanding of, of, you know, just how it happened. And, you know, the, the, the Wikipedia page, I know that's not something to trust, but it, it says that the missile fired due to a power surge when the pilot transferred his systems from external to internal. Yes. So when he did that, of course, there's going to be electricity moving to a different quadrant of the ship and how it is releasing that, those pulses of energy. And when, when that did so, for lack of a better way of understanding it, the safety was off on the missile. And Yeah,
2: that's essentially what yeah. it comes down to. Yeah,
1: yeah. the safety should yeah. have been on. Just like your gun that you have at home, you have the safety on. And it was just one step that now, of course, as a result of the, the deep investigation, you know, and, and I guess there wasn't instructions to the, the sailors that were specifically telling them that this is your job. Maybe they shortcutted it. I mean, the fact was Lyndon Johnson later that evening was mentioning the 40,000 troops being led into Vietnam, didn't even mention the fire. So this yeah. the time is was of the essence.
2: It was a miscommunication that, that, that led to the, the rocket firing. But the thing that, that I found, and I didn't even really um, discover this until very late in my research when I got the information about the, the old bombs on board. Um, the important thing is that even when that rocket fired, it didn't have to be um, nearly as serious an incident as it turned out to be. Right. The rocket fired, went all the way across the deck, hit John's, John McCain's plane mm-hmm. and knocked his uh, um, uh, belly tank, fuel tank, um, off. Mm-hmm. And the rocket didn't explode. It went on through and just splashed in the ocean. Now, they had a, um, a belly tank on the, f- on the deck spewing JP-5 fuel. That's serious. Mm-hmm. And it ignited, caused a fire. But a fire on the flight deck is not an uh, unknown occurrence on, on a carrier. Mm -hmm. It happens sometimes. They have procedures. They can put it out. This fire should have been put out before anything bad happened. Mm. What turned it into a deadly situation, a real catastrophe, was the bombs that started blowing up immediately, long, far, far sooner than anyone would have expected. A
1: minute and something, a minute and 43 seconds, I think?
2: Yes. And the first bomb that exploded was a 1,000-pound bomb, one of those old... World War II-era bombs, Mm. and that bomb exploded about 90 seconds into the fire, and the fire crews were doing their job. They were prepared to put out that fire immediately before any real damage occurred, but as they all gathered around the fire, that 1,000-pound bomb exploded and killed all of the trained firefighters in Mm. one instant.
1: And, and to others, and 70 more underneath because the, the, the space underneath was, was where the guy slept.
2: Right. That's where it got really deadly. Uh, these bombs, that was only the first 1,000-pounder that mm. went off. But these bombs uh, actually blasted open the armor plating on the flight deck. And then all of this uh, loose JP-5 fuel, which is essentially like mm. kerosene, um, started pouring down into berthing compartments where sailors were sleeping, mm. Mm. and um, from there, it was just a it was a catastrophe.
1: And you think about it, and what what happened was on a U.S. aircraft on a U.S. ship. This type of chaos and catastrophe had not been felt, like you mentioned in your book, since World War II. This is a huge ordeal. I mean, the folks who were survivors and the people who died. They, you know, they didn't know if they were being—they didn't know if they were being attacked. I mean, they had no idea what was going on at the time.
2: Oh yeah, so. the, a, a lot of the men below decks um, thought that they were under attack by by the North Vietnamese. They mm-hmm. had—they were surprised. They didn't expect the enemy yeah. to come out to see and attack them like that. But when they felt their ship shaking and explosions all over, that was the only thing they could conclude.
3: Gregory, that first bomb that rolled in and started the chain reaction of the other bombs, was that off the John McCain's plane?
2: Uh, yes, I believe the first one was. Yeah, they were all over the deck at that point, And after the first one went off, all the other ones started going
1: as well. And there was 40,000 pounds of jet fuel loaded on those planes combined. The, now, yeah. we, we have another segment or two so i want to get into the remnants and what happened but um as these individuals were feeling these explosions and the the captain of the ship i mean he was watching it real time they had a video monitor and he was watching it you had this one guy if you if you remember the video of the he was quote an older gentleman but he was only 30 to them they were he was a lot older uh, and i don't remember his name i have it written down here i think it was uh farrier if I recall yes. so he goes running he goes running out there into harm's way. You can see the video and he's got a um, he's got with him what is it that he has?:
2: It's a purple K fire extinguisher a, it's a fire extinguisher that's designed for fuel fires
1: but it blew, I mean it was it had a huge range, but I believe he perished
2: He did, and he is considered one of the great heroes of, of the forestal fire because his, his instinct was to do his job. He mm-hmm. grabbed that Purple-K fire extinguisher, ran right to the fire, because, and he did that because he didn't expect the bomb to blow up in 60 or 90 seconds. Mm-hmm. Normally, you would be able to run out to that fire, put out the fuel, and everything's pretty much okay. Mm. But he was one of the first and charged right out into it.
1: Well, I definitely want to, it's Gerald Farrier, I think is how it's pronounced. Um, yeah. Uh, Navy
2: firefighting facility is... Named after
1: Farrier. That's amazing. Well, I want to I want to make sure we get a little bit more detail on those guys' name. Yes, absolutely. And we're going to continue with this great story and tragic event commemorating this uh, heroic sailor and others who survived. Sailors to the End. Author Gregory Freeman is with us, and we'll be right back after these messages. The Housing
0: Hour with Kevin Ray continues helping you understand what's really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray.
1: And welcome back to the Housing Hour. This is Kevin Ray here with host Mark Griffith, co-host Mark Griffith, sometime host if needed. Um, Thank you for joining us. Excited to um, uncover and and talk about this event. And we definitely appreciate the time that Gregory is spending with us. Um, Gregory Freeman, the author of Sailors to the End. Uh, you have a website, don't you, that you can direct people to as well?
2: Yes, uh, GregoryAFreeman.com.
1: Okay, and we'll have the link as well for our um, loyal listeners to go to, and they can go to the link and purchase the book. They can go read more about uh, Gregory and his other books that he's writing and written. Um, really a well-done book mm-hmm. that he's written. It's it's very thorough. I love the book. You have pictures. You have explanations. You have an incredible uh, amount of detail that that's for anyone who is interested in learning more about this event not just learning about the the high level details but i'm talking about the the details that you would want to know if you were really interested this is the book to read this This is is it it. there is no doubt so um let's pick back up where when the bombs went off we had gerald um farrier who was the one of the the key figures the key heroes that were that really ran out you can see the video he's just running To the flames, and he's got this 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 um, tool that he hopes to use, and it's not really meant for a big big fire. I mean, that fire at the time—if you can kind of see the video and the amount that that canister sprayed—it looked like it was an an enormous amount of foam that was coming out of there.
2: Yeah, and he realized uh, when he got there and um, saw the bomb, um, the first bomb lying in the fuel that it was a dangerous situation. And Mm -hmm. he in fact waved off a lot of other people who were running towards the fire. Oh, wow. Um, so he was putting himself right up front and waving off some of his fellow sailors.
1: Mm -hmm. So um, 90 seconds into it, we have the bomb explode. So Gerald was out there within that first 90 seconds. Yes. So the, what happened was the, the missile launched hit John McCain's belly of his, of his, um, plane, that bomb dropped. Then the other bomb that went through the plane and into the ocean. The jet fuel was leaking. There was a spark. There was a fire. Instantaneously, John McCain is on his uh, he's on his plane, and his his life is in immediate danger. Obviously, there's fire all around his ship. I guess had he popped the hatch at that point? Yeah, I know that the pilot next to him did, but maybe had he closed his hatch at that point?
2: He, uh, if I recall correctly, I think his hatch was closed, but he was able to to hop out mm-hmm. and uh, run out on the nose probe of his plane and jump out and get away just in time before the explosion
1: happened. He, the way he described it, I and mean, of course he talks, he downplays it, but to to escape that, I mean the where he actually went, if you look at the plane, it, he fell pretty far from the where he had to jump from.
2: Oh yeah, yeah.
1: And then he yeah. also got shrapnel in his chest and legs as a result of the bomb, and two days later he was back flying.
2: Right, right. Yeah, and he did uh, what the pilots were supposed to do. Pilots um, are instructed to uh, stay with your plane as as long as you can. Uh, basically, they don't want pilots running around on the deck. Uh, mm-hmm. They want them in their cockpits uh, and not uh, interfering with the, the choreography of everything going on the flight deck. Um, so he... Got himself out of danger and then uh, went below decks uh, and the rest of the crew uh, took over in terms of firefighting. And at this point, with that first uh, blast, um, all the trained firefighters are dead. And so the rest of the crew uh, of the ship has to step up and uh, learn on the fly how to Mm -hmm. fight a uh, flight deck fire.
1: Yeah. And, And I guess using the water was probably the wrong move.
2: Well, yeah. What happened was the um, in the immediate aftermath, the the crew got a lot of kind of snarky criticism for um, using uh, water hoses, which washed away the firefighting foam mm-hmm. that other crews were putting down um, on the uh, on on the fuel fire. Mm-hmm. But the thing was, these these were young, eighteen, nineteen year old guys who had not right. been specifically trained in firefighting. Absolutely, they, and the, the, they the firefighters were doing the best had good just
1: good been the a, yeah the firefighters had just been killed. 30 seconds later earlier
2: yeah yeah
1: and when that happened they just took what they thought was the best approach and water was the first thing that comes to mind especially if you're not trained for it and like you mentioned it 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 cools the air in the atmosphere which then allows for um maybe the fire to spread so what happened essentially is that the water was causing the fire to spread through around the deck you also, in addition to that, had jet fuel pouring into – once the first bomb exploded, you had jet fuel pouring into the first deck, which, which which is where men were sleeping. The fire, of course, followed that flame. Those people perished 70 immediately within a couple of minutes. And But then you've got – okay, now when that happened, you had the second bomb. You had the third. I mean, now they're thinking this ship's going down, right? Yeah. Talk us through that. I mean, what, the people who you've been able to interview or hear be interviewed or yourself talk with. I mean, did a lot of the guys they thought the ship was going down at some at some point. It was almost a given. I think.
2: Yeah, it was. It was a horrific experience for them. And um, I mean, you guys have seen the uh, the video from the flight deck. Those bombs going off were just incredible. Yeah. And uh, one after another. And it was quite reasonable for, for a lot of those sailors to think their ship was going down, even this huge, powerful carrier that they were on. The force of these bombs, it was easy to think they weren't going to make it. Mm-hmm. And the thing, you see this in some of the stories in my book, the the men who were stationed all over the ship, a lot of them had very different experiences because the guys on the flight deck, they were experiencing all that right in front of them. Um, people throughout the ship, and there were 5,000 sailors on the ship, mm-hmm. uh, which is like, I forget, 10, 12 stories tall. Mm-hmm. Um, depending on where you were on the ship, you you felt these explosions. You heard all the alarms going off, but you didn't really know what was going on. People thought they were under attack. People thought the ship was about to sink. And there were some guys who were not up top in the middle of it, but they were just as terrified by just not knowing Mm. what was happening.
3: Yeah. And Gregory, uh, let me ask you this, Um, you know, in this type of situation, when you have uh, something like nine bombs that actually exploded during that period of time, real fast, how was the command and control? It was, it was, you know, as far as these other guys that were fighting the fires and the rest of, since the firefighting team was gone, yeah. how did the control aspect of communication occur?
1: Yeah, good question.
2: Yeah, the uh, the senior leaders on the ship were they performed so admirably. Um, uh, Admiral Beeling was the captain at the time. He immediately he was just a short way away from the bridge when it all happened. He immediately comes to the bridge, takes control. And then uh, Merv Rowland was the uh, chief engineering officer. He was in charge of damage control, so he was uh, in his station in damage control. And um, Between the two of them, they had years of experience. They were, they were old salts on this ship, and they immediately took charge of the response, and um, they saved that ship along with these, these young sailors who were, were doing their best to, to figure out how to fight the fires. They, they saved that ship. It could have easily have been lost.
1: Bob Thompson, who is a loan officer at Mortgage Investors Group, was on the ship. He was um, on the flight deck at some point, maybe the second. I can't remember. But there's a picture of him in a book that we have um, that actually. That one. No, I don't see that one. Yeah, this one. I'll show you. Um, well, okay. All it's right. in Gregory's book. Well, You've that's got, awesome. Yeah. So there's a picture of Bob actually take because what they had what they had to do was they had to, a lot of these planes that were had had damage they were pushing them off of the ship I mean and Bob was one of the guys that was assisting taking one of these missiles and, and push they were pushing a lot of this stuff overboard weren't they
2: Oh yeah yeah when uh, when they realized the munitions were blowing up that the the, the fuel was leaking and blowing they started uh, just getting rid of everything that could blow up, and that meant um, pushing fully loaded jets off the side of the ship. Uh, They were uh, one deck below in the hangar level. They were taking pallets of bombs and just pushing them overboard. Um, So, yeah, anything that looked looked like it could blow up,
3: they wanted to get rid of it. And some of these bombs were not light. I mean, Mm -mm. a 1,000 pounds... Uh, or yeah. more, how, how many men would it take to carry something like that?
1: Well, the interview, Oh yeah. yeah.
3: And, and you saw guys doing, you know, really heroic things. Uh, you know, it,
2: people, people were doing things way beyond what you should ever expect of somebody.
1: I, I tell you something else too, because I'm a journalist at heart and this gentleman who took these pictures, what a very difficult position to be in because we would have lost such an incredible amount of history. Had he laid his camera down and just jumped in and tried to help. He was doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, and that is to capture the moment and be able to record in history this very incredible, tra- incredibly tragic event. So I consider him to be a hero as well. Others might not. But I think what he did to capture this really added to the context and just what we are able to learn from this. Would you agree with that?
2: Oh, I, I totally agree with that, and that's what you saw a lot of that day. I mean, yeah, a lot of the, the video footage and all focuses on the, the guys who were running around doing very physical things, mm-hmm. um, but there were a lot of guys who sort of had to had to restrain themselves to do their job, mm-hmm. which was not necessarily running out and fighting the fire, not necessarily throwing those bombs overboard, but... Uh, working their station in damage control, making sure people were communicating with, you, with each other, mm. that sort of thing. And, yes, I think sometimes it's harder to to sit at your uh, station and, and do your job than to run out and do what every instinct is telling you
1: to do. I agree completely. Well, Gregory Freeman is on the phone with us. We have one more segment with this author of Sailors to the End. We'll be right back after these messages.
0: Housing Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what's really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray.
1: Welcome back into The Housing Hour. We are in the last segment of our interview with the author of Sailors to the End, Gregory A. Freeman. I'm Kevin Ray with Mark Griffith, and we thank you for joining us. The show is presented by Mortgage Investors Group, MIGOnline.com. You can go find his book on TheHousingHour.com, which is our website. Treasure Trove of Information. Um, in our last remaining moments, um, we are celebrating, I guess celebrating is not the right, right word, commemorating yeah. the 50th anniversary of this event. And um, Gregory has been nice enough to come on and be interviewed because he wrote a book, a very good book. And we'd love for you to go and purchase that book. It's a great read. And I think it's well worth um, the the money that you would spend. I think, uh, Gregory, when I think about what the last segment should have. I think the fiftieth anniversary for most people that were involved in this event, like Bob, for instance, he's in Washington DC and he is uh participating in the ceremony. And I think it's a solemn moment for a lot of people. Um and it's also a moment to mark in their own lives sort of a a you know a changing of directions for some. I, I've heard sailors talk about, you know, having a near death experience really uh, brings out sometimes the best in people and um, helps them to sort of take a journey in their life that maybe they wouldn't have. And you hear the pilot that was next to John McCain um, talk and you talk, you know, these guys are still emotional about it, you know, some 50 years later. Can you kind of talk about that a little?
2: Oh yeah, it, it is. Um, for, for the men who survived this, um, it, it was absolutely a turning point in their lives. Um it, it, some for the better, some for the worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, some 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 men had uh, very difficult times after, um, and part of that was because the Navy had let them think um, mm. the whole disaster was their fault. And um, this information about the old bombs and that being the real catalyst for making it such a disaster didn't come out until uh, my book was published. And so um, knowing the whole story was cathartic for a lot of them um i think it um helped them relieve a lot of uh uh really undeserved guilt and um a lot of them um you know they're they're still very close i think uh you know when you go through a, a disaster like this together it uh, it really bonds people in a way that others can't really understand
3: yeah hey gregory did you get any pushback from the navy when you came out with this book
2: you know, I was kind of expecting to, but I didn't really, uh, because I think the people who were responsible had already moved on. I think it was uh, uh, enough years later that anyone who could be held accountable for it had already moved on, and and, mm-hmm. and I think the Pentagon just let it go at that point.
1: Yeah. Well, and so now they've it's...
2: made tre- tremendous safety improvements as a result mm-hmm. of the forestal fire. It's... Uh, uh, a great deal was learned from from the incident, and they still use uh, footage from the forestal fire as uh, firefighting training for every Navy sailor. You ask any Navy sailor about the forestal fire, and they'll they'll be able to tell you about
1: it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And um, out of the hundred and thirty four killed, there's still eighteen There was never recovered, and those people are remembered today as well um, as as well as the gentleman who lost his life the prior night that uh, was overboard and. Um, you know, that evening, Mark mentioned this to me, and I guess it was something that that was related to the event. But we had a, a press conference by the sitting president, Lyndon Johnson. And, you know, today it would be on every social media, every news outlet. And it would be a live stream probably from a helicopter somewhere in the Gulf of Tonkin. Maybe not. I don't know. But it certainly wouldn't have been undisclosed. He he did not even mention it. I, did you did you even did you investigate that aspect of it
2: yeah and i i I found it noteworthy as well you're right you know if the same incident happened today it would be huge news um i think uh in the context of the vietnam war um i think it just uh unfortunately was uh shoved to the side as just another tragic incident in vietnam Mm -hmm. and uh that was a real shame it uh I think that contributed to how how hard it was for a lot of the survivors that uh, the loss of their friends uh, wasn't really even acknowledged.
3: Well, I just wondered if it's because he was announcing the um, increase uh, uh, soldiers being added, forty five thousand soldiers being added. I just wondered with this type of tragedy, you kind of look like, oh my gosh, what are we getting into? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: I'm, yeah, they didn't want to highlight that. They, they didn't want to They certainly didn't want to highlight um, the loss of. So many men in, in such an
1: unnecessary way, and it speaks to the. It speaks really to the change in in the times that we're living because that's that would not have been possible to to not disclose. It would have. It, I mean, certainly, if you had today's time, Donald Trump, if some event were happening in this and a, a bigger event, because the Vietnam War was a bigger event, certainly, Um, but it would have not been excusable. It just kind of speaks to the communication that we have in today's times.
2: It's true. It's true. It's uh, uh, we have so much more access to information now that it, it would be handled quite differently. I think.
1: Mm-hmm. And
3: Gregory, um, post um, you know review, the military looked into this. Were there any um, uh, you know sentences handed down? Was anybody mm-hmm. found culpable for this? How was the outcome?
2: Um, captain Beeling, uh, the captain of the forestall, was uh, I essentially held accountable for it uh, because. Uh, though there there wasn't anything to pin on him in terms of anything he did wrong, uh, Navy culture is such that if you have a serious incident on your ship and lives are lost, the captain is held accountable. Yep. And so the Navy treated him as such. Um, initially transferred him to a desk job in Iceland, um, wow. which is... Uh, Pretty bad outcome for a man who's made the yeah, Navy really. his career, um, but afterwards uh, there was a further review and he was exonerated and uh, retired as a rear admiral and uh, absolutely was loved and respected by his men and very very well respected in the Navy.
1: And you you have a picture of him um, coming home early from Vietnam and uh, there his I guess son at the time was was giving him a hug um, and there are certainly were people that were responsible, and the fact that he was exonerated, I'm certain, was the right thing to do. In your eyes, do you feel that way as well?
2: Oh, I absolutely do, and um, the men who served under him absolutely feel that way. Mm -hmm. They admired and respected that man so much, Um, and in fact, when I was researching the book, uh, none of the vets were going to talk to me until I got the blessing of Captain Bealing.
1: Oh, wow, wow. That's pretty cool.
3: Well, they're a tough crew to talk to because when uh, Kevin interviewed Bob Thompson three years ago Mm -hmm. and uh, kept on talking about his role and the uh, heroic type of efforts that Bob made, and Bob just looked at him just as cold fish, looked at him and says, it's what sailors do. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's all he said. Yeah, I've heard variations of that
2: from many people. They don't want any accolades. They don't want any... um, uh, any uh, accusations of being a hero or anything like that. Mm -hmm. They will tell you they did what they did because their buddies were in danger. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that is, wow. I mean, having that, that self understanding doesn't exist in, in every walk of life. You know, a lot of people of course would take that opportunity to boast their um, incredible significance. And, and you hear John McCain, I mean, when he talks about it as well, I mean, he's, he, you know, he obviously was escaping a fire, but I mean, he's he's very solemn and, and, you know, understands the importance not only of the event, but also for the fact that one hundred and thirty four lives were lost. And that if you think about that, it's one hundred and thirty four families that had that devastation, as well as we were in the middle of a pretty tough battle in Vietnam as well. So I tell you what, this has really been an interesting um uh, interview And I am just really appreciate you coming on. And I want to just really recommend that people go get this book because um, for American history, if you want to know something about American history and it to be factual, <laughs> I guess you would say, um, this is a book that you would read. You know, back when I was younger, we used to have to go to encyclopedias to get information. Now people just go to Google. Well, that may or may not be where you want to go. But this is a book that has been thoroughly researched. The references are tight. And I'd highly recommend you going and getting this book.
3: It's one of the best ones I've read. Uh, it's very, it, it reads kind of like a a, a novel, mm-hmm. but it's actual, so it's mm-hmm. just just very um, informational.
1: And it starts from the beginning and it takes you all the way through. So, um, Gregory Freeman, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for
2: remembering the Forestful veterans today.
1: Absolutely. Well, guys, thank you for coming on to the Housing Hour and listening to our show. We hope to see you or hear from you. And we'll see you next time right here on the Housing Hour. Step out the, line, the
2: man come and take you away. We better stop. Hey, what's sound? Everybody look what's going